Hey, it's Brad. Happy New Year. Guess what we got for Christmas? Yep, after four years of avoiding it, COVID has finally made its way to the Bradcast. Therefore, we will see you as soon as possible. Sorry about that. Until then, enjoy this encore presentation. For six years, I have been the target of the unrelenting Trump attack machine shouting, where's Hunter? Well, here's my answer. I am here. Oh. Hi, Hunter. How's it going? Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something ain't right. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles. This is the Bradcast. That's heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Also in California in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI and Round Mountains KKRN. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO and Eugene's KEPW. Lanchester, Pennsylvania's W News, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ. Down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ. Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast coast and around the globe every day on the Internet, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, no Lies Radio, Burden Square Radio, Detour Talk, and most of your favorite podcast sites. Blanketing Planet Earth, I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us for another two-thrilling edition of the Bradcast with too much stuff Breaking left and right as we go to air. As usual. Yeah, well, it's worse today than usual. Hi, Desi yes. Doyen. Hi. Uh, we uh, we spent some time yesterday on Joe Biden's resilient economy, the inflation uh, continuing to come down, record low unemployment, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, now we have this just as we go to air. The Dow Jones Industrial Average jumped to a record on Wednesday as the Federal Reserve finally signaled it would cut interest rates several times next year, satisfying investors who hoped the central bank would finally start to acknowledge the slowing trend of inflation with a less aggressive monetary stance. The 30-stock Dow added 512 points, or 1.4%, to close uh, above 37,000 for the first time ever. Well, thanks, Joe Biden. Uh, that exceeds its uh, previous all-time high set in January of 2022. Who was the president in January 22? Uh, let me think about that. I think, I think it might be Joe that, Biden. Oh, there yeah. we go. Well, yeah, thanks again, Joe Biden. The uh, S&P jumped 1.4%, uh, crossing the 4,700 line for the first time since January 22. NASDAQ composite climbed point. Almost 1.4%. All three major averages 
hit fresh 52-week highs on Wednesday. The central bank declined to raise rates at its final meeting of the year, but more importantly, it forecast three rate cuts for 2024. That's good news for people looking to get loans to buy a house, buy a car, etc. But those three cuts were more than the central bank had previously indicated, leading to the jubilance on Wall Street on Wednesday. Investors have been increasingly hoping for the Fed to give a clearer signal that it would start cutting rates next year with recent recent inflation data easing, uh, as we detailed on yesterday's show. Uh, The Fed's uh, meeting statement acknowledged that inflation, quote, has eased over the past year. And the Fed formally lowered its inflation forecast for 2024 down to 2.4 percent, which is by and large what the inflation rate generally sits at all the time, as it was before the pandemic, which the Biden administration has taken great pains to manage and for which, by the way, Republicans still try to take credit for. I saw a story about uh, Alabama's Republican Governor Kay Ivey last night. Yeah. Taking credit for, quote, awarding $46 million to help low-income families cover home heating and cooling. Good Lord. Well, that sounds very nice of her. The uh, newspaper, the Alabama Political, Political Reporter, reported it exactly that way without noting that that $46 million was actually from Joe Biden's American Rescue Plan adopted just after he took office, which passed on a party-line vote with universal opposition from the Republican Party. But uh, other than that, sure, Governor Ivey awarded $46 million to needed Alabamians. No mention of Joe Biden. None. And you wonder why Donald Trump is beating Joe Biden in the polls. Wonder if that has anything to do with it. Anyway, the uh, burst of economic optimism on Wall Street on Wednesday was hardly the only breaking news. Uh, We've got good-ish news coming from the annual U.N. Climate Conference being held this year in Dubai. It has now wrapped up, and the uh, 200 nations meeting there have finally come to a unanimous agreement for a Closing statement to end this year's conference, and for the first time, they actually bothered to what? <laughs> to mention fossil what? fuels. Fossil fuels, they said that phrase they in, said in the, the words. statement? The actual words that should not be named in the past have now been named. Yes, the uh, nations named all... Named and shamed. Yeah, the nations all agreed that they need to transition off of fossil fuels that are responsible for 75% of human-caused global warming. And, you know, just quickly, it is both insufficient but historic, and it, I think it marks a turning point. So More on that a little bit later in the show, if time allows. And um, on, the, on the ongoing... GOP's Joe Biden witch hunt, which Hunter Biden finally uh, had a few words about on Wednesday. But we got to start today with the U.S. Supreme Court and one of our favorite guests who is standing by to talk about it. Okay, Uh, things are moving very quickly right now at the court in some respects. In others, well, not nearly fast enough and in others still Well, the metaphorical jury is still out. On Monday, as you recall, special counsel Jack Smith filed a petition for a rare expedited hearing at the U.S. Supreme Court on Donald Trump's appeal at the lower D.C. Circuit Court of Appeal 
to uh, the even lower still U.S. District Court judge ruling that found that no, in no uncertain terms, former presidents do not enjoy absolute immunity from prosecution for crimes that they may have carried out while serving as president. That is particularly true, the judge determined, when those crimes have nothing to do with the actual job of being president, as in the case of Trump's felony indictment regarding his attempt to steal the 2020 presidential election by, among other things, inciting an insurrection at the U.S. Capitol on January 6, 2021, with the intent to obstruct Joe Biden's 2020 Electoral College certification in Congress. Just hours after his petition to the high court on Monday, seeking to have them hear Trump's appeal to the lower court, a somewhat encouraging uh, sign, the court quickly decided that they would, in fact, agree to consider taking up the case on the expedited basis that prosecutors were seeking in hopes of keeping the scheduled March 4 trial date on track so that there might be a verdict in this case, a conviction or an acquittal, before voters went to the polls in next year's presidential election when Donald Trump is likely to be on the ballot yet again. But just when you thought the U.S. Supreme Court which Trump himself packed with three of his own appointees, just when you thought they might be preparing to actually do the right thing regarding accountability for the four-time criminally indicted former president, well, on Wednesday, they made another announcement that might, might throw a wrench into the works, as Trump-appointed judges are doing a whole lot these days, not only at the Supreme Court, but in federal courtrooms all across the country, as I'll speak with my guest about momentarily. But as the New York Times reported the SCOTUS announcement on Wednesday, the Supreme Court agreed to decide a question at the heart of the federal election interference case against former President Donald J. Trump and against hundreds of prosecutions arising from the assault on the Capitol on January 6th. Can the government charge defendants in those cases under a federal law that makes it a crime to corruptly obstruct an official congressional proceeding? The decision to hear the case, the paper notes, will complicate and perhaps delay the start of Trump's trial, now scheduled to take place in Washington in March the Supreme Court's ultimate ruling on this matter, which may not arrive until June, is likely to address the viability of two of the four main counts against Trump in Jack Smith's federal election case. It could severely limit efforts by the special counsel to hold the former president accountable for the violence of his supporters at the Capitol. The court's eventual decision could also invalidate convictions that have already been secured against scores of Trump's followers who took part in the assault and prove an enormous blow to the government's prosecutions of the January 6 riot cases. The case the court agreed to hear involves Joseph Fisher, who was uh, indicted on seven charges for his role in the Capitol attack. Prosecutors say he assaulted the police as Congress met to certify the results of the 2020 election, like hundreds of other rioters whose actions disrupted the certification proceeding in the Capitol, Mr. Fisher was charged with the obstruction count, specifically the charge of corruptly obstructing an official proceeding. 
Fisher sought dismissal of a portion of his indictment brought under the obstruction law, which was passed as part of the Sarbanes-Oxley Act of 2002, a statute aimed primarily at white-collar crime. Prosecutors have routinely used the obstruction charge in lieu of more politically contentious counts like insurrection or seditious conspiracy to describe how members of the pro-Trump mob disrupted the peaceful transfer of presidential power. Hundreds of cases have been heard and convictions secured in federal courtrooms that included that charge. But one judge... A Donald Trump appointee, as luck would have it, Judge Carl J. Nichols of the Federal District Court in D.C., granted Fisher's motion to dismiss, saying that the law required defendants to take, quote, some action with respect to a document, record, or other object, unquote, something that the judge said was missing from Fisher's conduct at the Capitol. Well, a divided three-judge panel on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit reversed Judge Nichols' decision, ruling that the law, quote, applies to all forms of corrupt obstruction of an official proceeding. The three January 6 defendants, including Fisher, ultimately asked the Supreme Court to decide whether the law had been properly applied to the Capitol attack. Defense lawyers representing January 6 rioters argued that federal prosecutors improperly stretched the scope of the law meant to cover financial crimes in order to cover the violence that erupted at the Capitol and interfered with the proceeding in which lawmakers had gathered to certify the results of the election. The lawyers also took issue with using the charge against people who stormed the Capitol, saying that many were not acting, quote, corruptly, as the law requires, because they actually believe that they were protesting a stolen election. Well, two of the four counts in the federal election interference indictment against Donald Trump are actually based on that very same obstruction charge. He has been accused of personally obstructing the certification proceeding at the Capitol on January 6th and faces a separate count of conspiring with others to obstruct the proceeding. Depending on how the stacked 6-3 to high court rules, prosecutors could be forced now to drop those charges against Trump. And in any event, waiting for the court to hear this case and issue their opinion on it, well, that could take until June of next year, far after the currently scheduled March 4 start date for Trump's trial. Now, while I had originally intended to talk to my guest today about the Voting Rights Act and how Trump-appointed judges are undermining it across the country in advance of next year's critical elections, particularly for the U.S. House, as discussed in his recent article headlined, The Dead Hand of the Trump Administration is Still Strangling the Right to Vote, today's breaking news from the high court would seem to provide yet another example of how Trump judges are, yes, strangling the rule of law as a whole. Joining us now to discuss all of the above, I suspect, is our old friend and top shelf court journalist, Mark Joseph Stern, who covers the law, the court system, the U.S. Supreme Court, election law, LGBTQ issues, and so much more for Slate.com. Oh, Papa Mark, welcome back to the broadcast. Uh, after your recent parental leave at Slate, and congratulations on your new baby, sir. 
Thank you so much. If any of you hear squealing or screaming in the background, you'll know it's just a little infant. Uh, but I am happy to be here back to the grind and chatting with you, Brad. Actually, it might be me doing the squealing and screaming. <laughs> so, you know, don't be so sure. Uh, I'm very happy, by the way, that you were able to take some time off and that at Slate, I, I believe you're a member of the union, the Writers Guild yes, there, that that's lets right. you do that. Am I right about that? Yes. Uh, our union has negotiated a very generous parental leave policy. I mm -hmm. actually have a little bit more to take later in the year. Mm -hmm. So uh, folks out there who are listening, who are union curious, mm -hmm. you know, I strongly encourage you to start that organizing because there's no better way to get rights for new parents in the workplace than through collective bargaining. Yep. Smartly said, sir. Uh, we did miss you, however, nonetheless. Uh, luckily, you picked a really slow couple of news months to be gone. So <laughs> uh, sadly, uh, we'll try to catch up with uh, some of what we missed. Uh, we have to start and maybe even end with the not yet dead hand of the Trump administration affecting uh, pretty much everything of note in the court these days. It, it seems from voting to taxes to abortion to Trump's own accountability for his own crimes. Uh, so we saw a sort of a ray of light, maybe, on Monday from the Supreme Court uh, regarding an expedited hearing on uh, presidential immunity. But what should we make of the court's announcement today that they will hear the separate challenge to the obstruction counts charged and convicted against hundreds of uh, January 6th rioters and, yes, pending against Trump in his currently scheduled March 4 trial? Yeah, you know, I agree with your assessment that this is a troubling development. Um, and the reality is that there wasn't a significant dispute over the interpretation of this particular statute um, as the Justice Department prosecuted literally hundreds of people for violating it on January 6th until a Trump judge, uh, Judge Nichols, mm -hmm. in the D.C. District Court suddenly decided to narrow its scope to a really astonishing degree and made it essentially a non-starter, just uh, wrote it off the books. Um, and then the uh, D.C. Circuit's split over its meaning with one Trump judge trying to write it off the books entirely and another trying to narrow it significantly. So what we've seen is this kind of, uh, I think we could call it a crusade against the obstruction law, mm. a, a judicial effort to turn it into a nullity or something close to it. And it's hard for me to read what the Supreme Court intends to do here. You know, I think they felt this was such an important question since it affects hundreds of people in these cases and eventually the former former president, they had to take it up. But this does lead to the, the big uh, question of whether it messes with the timeline. Uh, Judge Chuckin has been so clear. She wants this trial to happen quickly in March. But, you know, this is a, an important decision that the Supreme Court probably won't be handing down until June. They probably won't even hear arguments until April. They have not expedited the case. So this does raise a very real possibility that since two of the four charges against Trump in the, in the D.C. case, are rooted in the obstruction statute, that no matter how his other arguments fare at the court, this might give him an, a different justification to try to run out the clock and, and drag out um, the, the pre-trial kind of scuffling to the point that it's already election season. And then he can say, well, how dare you hold a trial now? I need to be on the campaign trail. Um, you know, it, it's, it's obviously not a complete disaster for the government because there are still two other charges in that indictment that are unrelated. Um, but 
this is uh, an ominous sign for those of us who wanted Chutkin to be able to move forward on her own timeline. Um, and, you know, even if the justices rule in what I think is the correct manner, which is to read this statute the way it was written, which is quite broad, you know, it might give Trump enough extra time to wriggle out. Well, can they move forward with the trial, with those charges as is, even while they're being heard at the Supreme Court? Yeah, they absolutely can. Um, and, and that's what makes this case different from the presidential immunity case mm -hmm. that the court did expedite consideration of. So mm -hmm. you alluded to that earlier. You know, the court on Monday said, OK, we'll we'll really speed up the process of deciding whether to to take up this case about essentially whether Trump has total immunity from any prosecution for any criminal offenses that he engaged in during his presidency, uh, which is, I think, a rather cockamamie theory, but that's what he argues. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that really goes to the entire heart of the case. If, if he has total immunity, then there can't be a trial. There mm -hmm. can't even be charges. This is a more technical issue, and this is the kind of issue that usually gets resolved on appeal, oftentimes after a conviction. So it is true that the trial could move forward while the Supreme Court is considering this issue and that uh, depending on how the court rules and how the trial goes, Trump could potentially appeal those particular convictions, you know, if he's convicted on mm -hmm. those counts. So it's not, a, you know, again, it's not a disaster. There are, there might be ways around it, um, but, you know, it would be much better if the Supreme Court had just given us what it does sometimes, a, a summary opinion mm -hmm. and said, this is what the statute means. Everybody carry on with this guidance. And again, though, this seems to be a, a case, as you wrote about recently regarding the Voting Rights Act, where Trump appointed judges are sort of throwing all sorts of wrenches into the system. There have been hundreds of cases where the obstruction charge was was heard without problem uh, regarding January 6 uh, defendants. But one Trump judge seems to have had a problem with it. And and here we are now back in 2019, Mark, uh, after then President Trump had blasted a federal judge who made a ruling regarding immigration, I think, uh, that he didn't like as being uh, a biased, quote, Obama judge. At the time, Chief Justice John Roberts stepped in. He issued a rare public statement to say, quote, we do not have Obama judges or Trump judges, Bush judges or Clinton judges. What we have is an extraordinary group of dedicated judges doing their level best to equal right, doing their level best to do equal right to those appearing before them. That was 2019, Mark. Uh, four years down the road, uh, your response to Roberts' remark on that? You know, I, I don't think Roberts necessarily even believed that at the time. And if he did, I, I question whether he even believes it now. Um, you know, we've seen over the last few years, Trump judges all around the country try to wield their power in aggressive and truly unprecedented ways, you know, trying to ban medication abortion nationwide or issue these sweeping injunctions against the Biden administration in all 50 states, really going beyond the judicial power to essentially act as a free-floating veto over any Democratic policy uh, and, and trying to smuggle in Republican policies under the guise of judicial review. Um, and I, I think that even if you take the premise that 
there aren't Bush judges or Clinton judges or Obama judges, I do feel that Trump judges are a different animal. And that's not mm. to say that I'm a huge fan of most of you know George W. Bush's judicial appointees. Mm -hmm. But with Trump judges, we've seen this willingness, this hunger to go so far beyond the traditional judicial role and to really act as almost dictators from the bench who will rewrite policy um, you know, in all 50 states, again, across the country to meet their desires in ways that seem sort of unseemly and even corrupt. Um, and so, again, you know, I do think there are Trump judges, and I think that mm -hmm. it's Trump judges who put us in this position now where it's not clear whether Trump himself will be able to have a timely trial. And that is a, a perfect example of what you just described, of Trump judges using the tools at their disposal to just throw a wrench in the works. It might not always win out in the end. You know, they often get reversed on appeal, but they can do a lot of damage in the yeah. meantime, and that often seems to be the goal. And that seems to be... Uh... The reason behind this case, the other announcement from the Supreme Court on Wednesday that they were going to be taking up this uh, Mifepristone case, the very widely used abortion drug. Yet again, it was a Trump judge who uh, initially tried to uh, sort of have it banned entirely. Uh, in somewhat brighter news, the justices said they were rejecting an appeal from abortion opponents who challenged the FDA's approval entirely of the drug. Um, but they are going to hear this case about, you know, limiting its use uh, through the mail, other restrictions and so forth. Arguably, that would not be the case without a Trump judge who was very specifically targeted by abortion opponents down in Texas. Yeah, to the point that these abortion opponents incorporated their sort of sock puppet group in Amarillo, Texas, because this guy, Matthew Kaczmarek, the Trump judge, mm -hmm. he's the only federal judge sitting in Amarillo. So they specifically created this sort of fake organization so that they could bring this case to his court. Mm -hmm. And before Trump elevated Matthew Kaczmarek to the bench, he was a devoted anti-abortion activist. He spent his entire life trying to prevent people from exercising reproductive freedom. And, and once he got to the bench, he wielded his power to continue that crusade. Mm -hmm. in, 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 again, ways that are really shocking and unprecedented. Um, so it's, yeah, it's a bleak time for those of us who would love to see equal right done to those who appear before the courts, <laughs> yes. but I'll, I'll hope that John Roberts still believes in that fantasy. Yeah, well, I hope so too, uh, because boy, oh, boy howdy, when it comes to all of this, uh, as noted, I had originally hoped to have you on to discuss your article on uh, how uh, long after they are out of office, quote, the dead hand of the Trump administration is strangling the right to vote. Mark, when we last spoke to you over the summer, it was on the heels of the really surprise, I think, five to four opinion by the court with Roberts and Brett Kavanaugh joining the uh, three liberals to essentially save Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. It was a case called Allen v. Milligan. They ordered, yes, the state of Alabama was egregiously violating the, uh, the Voting Rights Act by racially gerrymandering congressional seats. They ordered the state to add another black majority House district or something quite close to it before the 2024 election, um, so minority voters could elect a representative of their choosing. Uh, Alabama, incredibly, tried to ignore that direct order from the Supreme Court. But so far, the federal court has pre uh, prevented them from doing that. But that was 
also uh, is set to affect similar efforts by Republicans to racially disenfranchise voters in several other states. And now, as you write, there are Trump-appointed judges in at least three different cases in in three different states seemingly attempting to undermine the Supreme Court. I want to quickly walk through uh, some of those cases. I want to start with this Eighth Circuit uh, ruling recently. And then we can talk about how the Trump judges come to think they can get away with defying the high court. So, so yeah, the Eighth Circuit decision, I mean, it's almost too painfully stupid to explain. People will think I'm making it up. I'm not. <laughs> um, you know, for decades, uh, plaintiffs have brought hundreds of lawsuits under the Voting Rights Act, specifically under Section 2, which is the, the heart of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, no one has ever ruled, no court has ever said that there is a problem with that. We've seen individual voters bring these cases. We've seen civil rights groups bring these cases, private associations bring these cases Mm -hmm. you know they are the ones who are fighting on the ground for voting rights and and the supreme court has heard a lot of those decisions some of them they ruled the right way some of them they ruled a questionable way but in none of those cases did the supreme court ever question whether these cases could be brought but the eighth circuit declared that all of those decisions and all of those cases were illegitimate and and wrong and really unlawful because two judges led by a trump judge on the eighth circuit declared the Voting Rights Act cannot be enforced by private plaintiffs. So individual voters, associations of voters, they are not allowed, said the Eighth Circuit, to file a lawsuit under the Voting Rights Act. Only the Attorney General of the United States of America is allowed to ever file a lawsuit under Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. How many lawsuits has the Attorney General of the United States brought under the VRA? Precious few, because that is not how the law operates or how it was intended to operate. The whole point is that when you face discrimination, you get to go to court. And so what the Eighth Circuit really did here was sort of look at the Supreme Court, surprisingly, revive the Voting Rights Act, right, and Mm -hmm. say, well, I've got a great workaround what if we just say that no one can even bring these lawsuits to begin with? <laughs> and so now we've got this sort of, it sounds technical in a way, but it really goes to the, the heart of the matter. We've got this decision that, that tees up a question for the Supreme Court. You know, do you want to undo decades of precedent and make it impossible for anyone to enforce the Voting Rights Act? And that was uh, David Strauss's decision in the uh, Eighth Circuit Court, a Trump appointee, despite the fact that the Voting Rights Act says the attorney general, quote, the attorney general or an aggrieved person. It seems pretty clear in the actual text of the law. But now those grieved people, those voters or NAACP or ACLU apparently are not allowed to bring Voting Rights Act cases anymore. It's it's mind blowing. OK, uh, two more uh, Trump judges here, Lisa Branch and Britt Grant in uh, Georgia, Rose v. Raffensberger, my good friend, uh, Brad Raffensberger. <laughs> they're um, they're fighting uh, against uh, at large districts in the Public Service Commission. The 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 charges that those violate racial minorities keep them from uh, their right to choose their preferred candidates. But Trump judges say, uh, nope, that's the way Georgia wants to do it. So we should let them. 
Yeah. And the thing to understand here is that the Congress actually amended the Voting Rights Act in 1982 specifically to address at-large elections. And the problem with at-large elections, is, as Congress understood, is that they can easily be a tool to prevent black voters from ever electing their preferred representatives. Because, you know, a white majority, if it exists, can always outvote the black minority. Mm -hmm. That has happened time and again. And that's often why states uh, set up these at-large commissions. And that's, in fact, probably why the Jim Crow era legislature set up this particular commission. And they mm -hmm. set it up in a, actually a, a pretty malicious way. The representatives are from individual districts in the states that are drawn out, but the entire state's voters get to choose all of the, all of the representatives, right. which means that there are people in a majority black county or a majority black area, right, mm -hmm. who live there and ostensibly represent that area. But guess what? When they have to go to an election, white people all around the rest of the state get to vote against them and mm -hmm. overrule the, the black minority in their own district. You know, it's, it's a classic case of at-large elections being used to keep black people out of power. And yet the 11th Circuit in this Trump judge opinion just created a new principle out of a whole cloth that when a state decides to set up an at-large election system that there's nothing courts can do to stop them that even when there is this obvious racially discriminatory impact even when the whole design seems to be made to prevent black people from electing black representatives that there's simply nothing courts can do why because of general principles of federalism mm. what are those principles we are not told right. that is not explained we are just told to trust the court that that is the case. And so we will continue to have this really bad system in Georgia where, you know, no matter where you are in the state, you get to vote for these individual representatives um, who are supposed to be representing individual districts, but end up catering to the will of the white majority. Seems like not bad, not just bad uh, decisions here, but sort of unprecedented making up the law as they go. Two more uh, 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 Trump judges. Uh, uh, Judges here, Edith Jones and James Ho, uh, on the Fifth Circuit Court in a Louisiana case, a racial gerrymandering case, almost identical to the Alabama case that Brett Kavanaugh and John Roberts uh, agreed with, ordered Alabama to add another black district. There was a very similar case in Louisiana. How did Judges Jones and Ho figure out uh, to undermine this seemingly direct order from the Supreme Court? Yeah, so I must say, Judge, judge Edith Jones is not a Trump judge, but she is a MAGA judge. Okay. She is almost sort of a proto-Trump judge appointed by Ronald Reagan, okay. still one of the worst in the entire country. Yeah, I mean, this is such a... a, a <laughs> almost gruesome mangling of the law because, like you said, the Louisiana case is identical to the Alabama case. It's the exact same thing. You know, Louisiana legislators tried to gerrymander black voters out of power, packed them into this one bizarre gerrymander, um, and the district court ended up having to pause the litigation here for more than a year because the Supreme Court was considering the Alabama decision. The Alabama decision came down. The district court said, all right, well, We've had a year now to mull this over. I'm going to schedule a hearing over in New Maps. I'll schedule it uh, about three months from now so that the state of Louisiana has an opportunity to consider how it wants to, to move forward. And days before that hearing, after what amounted to a 15-month delay, <laughs> these two judges on the Fifth Circuit stepped in 
and halted the hearing, canceled it using this very, very rare and unusual tool that we call a writ of mandamus that is basically incredibly inappropriate for this circumstance and said, oh, this is an ambush by this judge. This judge is ambushing Louisiana. It's only given Louisiana lawmakers 15 months to, to prepare for this hearing that's tomorrow. You know, they need so much more time than this. So we're going to have to step in and block the hearing and push everything back. And again, it's not hard to see what they're doing. They're yep. trying to, to hold this litigation in, in, in a kind of freeze until it's so close to the 2024 election that, you know, it's just too late to change the rules of the game, which here would mean the, the lines of the districts. Even uh, Luckily, yeah. they were overruled, I will say. Well, by a different panel of judges. You know, I was going to say, even as uh, they would appear to be defying uh, direct or indirect orders coming from the high court, Mark, you describe a, quote, growing lower court rebellion, which apparently is a rebellion against the already far-right Supreme Court. Am I understanding that correctly? If so, how does this play out with, with <laughs> SCOTUS standing up for itself or rolling over to this? Well, that's the big question here. And, uh, you know, like I said, in this Louisiana case, uh, it ended up working out okay because it went to a different panel of judges and that panel was not quite so crazy. Um, but in some of these cases, including the, the Eighth Circuit case and maybe the Eleventh Circuit case, yeah, I mean, the, Brett Kavanaugh and John Roberts have to decide, are we going to be pushovers? Are we going to let them boss us around from the lower courts? Or mm -hmm. are we going to put our feet down and say, you know, this isn't just about the merits of an individual case. This is about the principle that the Supreme Court is, in fact, supreme and that it can't just be ignored or pushed aside when a lower court doesn't like its decision and uh, you know you i think that you put it well here like this is a very conservative court it issues maybe one kind of left-leaning decision a, a year right. if that right and what these lower court judges are saying is even that's one too many mm -hmm. you know there cannot be a single liberal friendly decision and if there is we will flout it i can't say that i know how john roberts and brett kavanaugh will react to this but i will say you know these judges they they only have to pick off one yeah. that's the, the beauty of a 6-3 conservative majority change the mind of either john roberts or brett kavanaugh and you've got a majority willing to do your your so it's a, it's a bleak time. Uh, you know, there, these cases will percolate up to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court will have to decide whether they'll allow this kind of mischief and mayhem on the lower courts. Mm -hmm. And frankly, I am I am pessimistic because in the past we have not seen a real spine from Brett Kavanaugh or John Roberts, and it doesn't seem likely that they'll grow one anytime soon. You argue it's a shameless gamble, uh, but not a bad bet to try to pick off one of those two judges. After all, you right they need to flip only one vote to receive a windfall uh you know i will note mark uh during the trump administration you warned about many of these very judges and frankly at the time how democrats in the senate were sort of waving them through to these lifetime appointments now i'm afraid uh, we're all paying the price for that and we will be doing so for a long time uh, it's <laughs> it, it brings me no pleasure to have called this out when it was happening. Yeah. And we're just going to have to stand by and watch the fallout now. 
On the other hand, it always gives us something to talk to you about, Mark Joseph Stern. <laughs> uh, you can find his uh, critical work once again, now back from parental leave at Slate.com. I think you can still follow him on the Twitters. You're still over there, right? At, uh, yes, I am. MJS underscore DC. Mark Joseph Stern covers the law, the court system, Supreme Court, and everything else for Slate.com. Mark, great speaking with you my, again, my friend. Hope you have a delightful holiday with your new baby. Always a pleasure. Thanks so much, Brad. You bet. Thank you. Okay, we've got to get to a break here. We're running late. Yes. And yes, yes, I see the breaking news. We will try <laughs> to get to that uh, and more, including Hunter Biden, I think. Straight ahead on the Bradcast, I'm Brad Friedman. Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Hey, this is Brad. You're listening to an encore presentation of the Bradcast. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from Bradblog.com. Well, uh, as I was uh, speaking with Mark there. Uh, I mentioned uh, some breaking news. This just in from CNN today. Not entirely a surprise, of course. The federal judge overseeing Trump's 2020 election interference case has temporarily paused all procedural deadlines while appeal uh, while appeals over the issue of Trump's claim of presidential immunity to all crimes committed while in office plays out. As special counsel Jack Smith noted in his Petition to the Supreme Court to determine the matter ASAP and in his motion for an expedited hearing at the lower court of appeals in the event that SCOTUS decides not to hear the case uh, before the appeals court does uh, does Judge Tanya Chutkin. uh, Her pause could lead to Trump's March 2024 trial date being pushed back, as Jack Smith had tried to uh, warn the Supreme Court and the appeals court. In asking for an expedited hearing, the order from Chutkin acknowledged that she no longer has jurisdiction over aspects of the criminal case while the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals and the Supreme Court consider whether Trump is immune and can be tried at all. She has already determined that he is not immune, but Trump has appealed her ruling in hoping to delay the trial until after the election. And Jack Smith is trying to get all the courts to hurry up and agree with her so that the American people, to paraphrase Nixon, can know if their former president is a crook or not before they're asked to vote for him again next November. So he has succeeded in creating the exact kind of delay that he needs in order to prevent any kind of trial before the election. For now. Yes, for for the moment. But it's a big deal. Yeah. Chutkin said in her order that the trial date of March 2024, March 4, 2024, could be affected and that she would reconsider that date when the appeals process has concluded, whenever that might be. 
Chutkin, however, said that the pause does not bar her from enforcing measures she has already imposed to, quote, safeguard the integrity of these proceedings, including the limited gag order that uh, she uh, filed against Trump and his conditions of release. And perhaps the process of selecting a jury can continue? I'm not sure. She wrote, quote, if a criminal defendant could bypass those critical safeguards merely by asserting immunity and then appealing its denial, then during the appeals pendency, the defendant could irreparably harm any future proceedings and their participants. So her gag order uh, ordering Trump to not attack Uh, potential witnesses in the case that will stand and she will continue to enforce that no matter how long it takes to get a uh, final ruling on presidential immunity. Defense attorneys have pushed back against an expedited appeals process. Trump's attorneys say that prosecutors are trying to disrupt their holiday travel plans. (laughs) Seriously, they cited the Grinch and unhappy children of defense attorneys in their uh, in their motion at the appeals court if they were forced to work over the holiday. And they claimed that the uh, effort to expedite a ruling in this matter was to, quote, disenfranchise voters in 2024. <laughs> I got so much, so much gall. It's amazing. Yep. Uh, speaking of so much gall... Uh, In remarks outside the U.S. Capitol on Wednesday, Joe Biden's son, Hunter Biden, explained why he was refusing to sit for closed-door questioning by Republican House lawmakers who have subpoenaed him as part of their digging into his business dealings in hopes of finding something, finding anything that they can use to revenge impeach Hmm. Joe Biden for. The president's son again insisted that he would be happy to testify, but only in a public house hearing, which Republicans have refused to agree to for some reason. Since House investigators subpoenaed Biden last month, his defense lawyers have repeatedly sought to move the questioning to a public forum, arguing that a private session would be selectively leaked by Republicans to maximize damage to both Hunter Biden and his father. Oh, do you think? Several times during his occasionally emotional remarks, Hunter Biden referred uh, uh, referenced his battles with drug and alcohol addiction, taking responsibility for his actions and saying that he is trying to make amends. He criticized Republicans, however, for using his struggles with addiction in attempting to damage his father, saying, quote, they've invaded my privacy, attacked my wife and children, tried to dehumanize me and embarrass and damage my father. For months, Republicans have been pursuing an impeachment inquiry in three different House committees seeking to tie President Biden somehow to his son Hunter's business dealings. So far, they have failed to uncover any evidence of wrongdoing by the president, but that hasn't stopped him. Here are some of Hunter Biden's remarks on Wednesday outside of the U.S. Capitol. For six years, I have been the target of the unrelenting Trump attack machine shouting, where's Hunter? Well, here's my answer. I am here. Let me state as clearly as I can. My father was not financially involved in my business. 
not as a practicing lawyer, not as a board member of Burisma, not in my partnership with a Chinese private businessman, not in my investments at home nor abroad, and certainly not as an artist. During my battle with addiction, my parents were there for me. They literally saved my life. They helped me in ways that I will never be able to repay. And of course, they would never expect me to. And in the depths of my addiction, I was extremely irresponsible with my finances. But to suggest that is grounds for an impeachment inquiry is beyond the absurd. It's shameless. There's no evidence to support the allegations that my father was financially involved in my business because it did not happen. James Comer, Jim Jordan, Jason Smith, and their colleagues have distorted the facts by cherry-picking lines from a bank statement, manipulating texts I sent, editing the testimony of my friends and former business partners, and misstating personal information that was stolen from me. There is no fairness or decency in what these Republicans are doing. They have lied over and over about every aspect of my personal and professional life, so much so that their lies have become the false facts believed by too many people. No matter how many times it is debunked, they continue to insist that my father's support of Ukraine against Russia is the result of a non-existent bribe. They displayed naked photos of me during an oversight hearing. And they have taken the light of my dad's love, the light of my dad's love for me and presented it as darkness. They have no shame. These same committee chairmen have engaged in unprecedented political interference in what would have already been a five-year investigation of me. Yet, here I am, Mr. Chairman, taking up your offer when you said, we can bring these people in for depositions or committee hearings, whichever they choose. Well, I've chosen. I am here to testify at a public hearing today to answer any of the committee's legitimate questions. Republicans do not want an open process where Americans can see their tactics, expose their baseless inquiry, or hear what I have to say. What are they afraid of? I'm here. I'm ready. And then he he, he walked away. He just much. walked away. That was yeah. it. He's here. He's ready. But apparently the Republicans were not ready to have him testify publicly uh, rather than behind closed doors. So now they're trying to enforce the subpoena, claiming that uh, Hunter Biden violated that. I guess they'll move forward with contempt of Congress for him refusing to show up and answer a subpoena, even though, you know, people like Joe jo uh, uh, Jim Jordan 
the head of the House Judiciary Committee was himself subpoenaed by Congress and refused to answer that subpoena when the House January 6th Committee uh, tried to get his testimony last year. But to be clear, Hunter yeah. Biden is showing up for the subpoena for the public hearing, which Comer said he had a choice. At least that's what Comer used to say. Used to say. Not so much anymore for some reason. Anyway, with all of that, that was Hunter Biden on the Capitol steps on Wednesday morning. By Wednesday afternoon, we have this. The House on Wednesday authorized the impeachment inquiry into President Joe Biden with every Republican rallying behind the politically charged process, despite lingering concerns among some in the party that the investigation has yet to produce any evidence of actual misconduct by the president. The 221 to 212 party line vote put the entire House Republican conference on record in support of an impeachment process that could lead to the ultimate penalty for a president, punishment for what the Constitution describes as high crimes and misdemeanors. Which, you know, looking back to Donald Trump's two different impeachments when they claimed he had no high crimes, no misdemeanors, uh, despite what he did regarding Ukraine, withholding money that Congress had uh, allocated to go to Ukraine, uh, attempting an insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. Throw, trying to overthrow the U.S. government. Yeah, but they claim, no, there was no crimes here. Not even any misdemeanors. When it comes to Joe Biden, what are these high crimes or misdemeanors? And what's the evidence for them? They don't seem to have any. At least not now, but that's why they claim they've opened an impeachment inquiry. So they can go look for evidence of some kind of crime, something, anything that they could uh, attach to Joe Biden. Authorizing the months-long inquiry ensures that the impeachment investigation extends well into 2024 when Biden will be running for re-election and seems likely to be squaring off against former President Donald Trump, who was, yes, twice impeached during his time in the White House, which is why I referred to this as a revenge impeachment. That is all that it is. Democrats have been united from the from the jump and still uh, on Wednesday during this uh, vote for this impeachment inquiry. They've been united against the uh, re Republican impeachment push. They say it's, quote, an illegitimate exercise merely meant to distract from GOP chaos and dysfunction. I think it's also intended to be used, at least according to Congressman Troy Nels, Republican of Texas, who actually explicitly said the quiet part out loud when he said this is so that Trump can have something to point to to say, see, look, it's ammo, as he put it, for Trump yeah. to say, see, look, uh, Biden was impeached, too. These are exactly the same. Now, to be clear. Biden has not been impeached. They have voted for an impeachment right. inquiry, in which case they look for evidence, as they have been for the past five years, uh, and, and seemingly unable to come up with any. Uh, but they've been looking. They, they are now officially impaneled to continue looking. And if they find anything, or in this case, even if they don't, because, you know, Republicans— they would then hold a vote to impeach the president on some one or more articles of impeachment, highlighting all of his uh, uh, high crimes and misdemeanors. But um, and then 
and then and only then the matter would go to the U.S. Senate. So we'll see if they ever actually hold an impeachment vote. In the meantime, uh, Congressman Jamie Raskin, the top Democrat on the Oversight and Accountability Committee, said we are at a remarkable juncture for the U.S. House of Representatives because this is an impeachment inquiry where no one has been able to define what criminal or constitutional offense that they're even looking for. Now, separately, when it comes to Hunter Biden, he is he is facing criminal charges in two different states from a special counsel, a U.S. attorney, in fact, who was tapped by the Trump administration uh, when Trump was still in office to oversee what has now become a five year investigation. Yes, Donald Trump weaponized his Justice Department to go after the Biden family. Hunter Biden is charged with firearm counts in Delaware, alleging that he broke laws against drug users uh, having guns in 2018 when he was struggling with addiction. He had, by the way, that gun for 11 days and never even loaded it before his wife threw it in a dumpster. Uh, And it was charged last week with nine new tax counts filed in California, alleging a scheme to avoid paying taxes over a three year period when he was in the depths of his uh, his addiction, which, by the way, he has long ago paid back. None of those charges, none of them. Would have ever been filed if he hadn't been the son of the president of the United States which makes a very good case for unlawful selective prosecution. His attorneys have uh, now uh, filed a motion to have the case dismissed because it is a selective prosecution, as they allege, um, seeking to at least uh, dismiss the gun charges. I, I would be surprised if they didn't also file something similar in California in regard to the tax charges. Uh, hopefully we'll have time to talk about that a little bit in the days ahead. Um, and all of that was done this morning, even as uh, Hunter Biden was uh, supposed to come in to answer the subpoena on the very day that Republicans were also already planning to vote on the impeachment inquiry. So there you go. I guess that's where we are. Yeah. Uh, another slow day in D.C., another slow day on the broadcast, but... Another sl- slow day internationally. There we're you dealing go. with climate oh, change, right. so I guess we're going to have to talk about that tomorrow. Another time. <laughs> yeah, sorry about that. That got pushed down the line with all of the other breaking news. We yeah, will talk about... It's the planet, you know. Well, it's not all that important. <laughs> it won't show up on uh, MSNBC or CNN at all, so True. don't worry about that. We'll have it for you tomorrow on the broadcast. I hope. Until then, my thanks to our guest today, Mark Joseph Stern of Slate, and to all of you for spending a portion of your busy day with us here on the Bradcast. If you missed any portion of today's program or any other that we have ever done in the history of mankind, you can download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. That is free. Thanks to those of you uh, who uh, stopped by bradblog.com slash donate to help us stay on your public airwaves, particularly those of you who sign up for a uh, an automated monthly donation of any amount you can afford. It is much needed and greatly appreciated right now. So thank you. Drop me email if you like. Oh, thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen. Oh, yeah. I forgot to say that. <laughs> uh, drop me email. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com and on the Facebooks, Mastodons, and site still known as Twitter. 
I am the Brad Blog. We will see you there and all of the above. Until we see you here next time, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. to the Bradcast. We are 100% listener supported thanks to listeners like you who drop by bradblog.com/donate.